Welcome to the Charles Dunham Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Dunham. The goal of this podcast is to create the perfect portfolio. Most people, if they're smart, and have limited knowledge of the stock market, but are smart nonetheless. If they want to, you know, retire early. Their best bet is to dump all of their money into a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund and sit back and make monthly contributions and reel in their six to eight percent a year until they retire uh, millionaires, even multi-millionaires. But that's not my goal. I am, and this is, you know, might come across as a naive mission to some, but I am interested in coming up with a portfolio that, using real strategy, can year in, year out, give me anywhere between 15% and 30% returns, um, somewhere in that ballpark. Obviously, that would uh, put me among the greatest uh, fund managers of all time and their track records, but why not have that goal? Why not have the ambition? Why not put in the effort to achieve that if it's possible? And I think that it is. And uh, the goal here isn't just to talk to talk though this is a podcast, the goal here is to actually show the natural progression for my portfolio, how it evolves, and just more or less to document the track record of this portfolio and to keep me thinking about it, but also to let my viewers let them in on my thought process and watch it grow and evolve organically. So I'm calling, uh, I'm calling this fund Tasmanian Tiger Capital. And I'm calling it Tasmanian Tiger because Tasmanian, the Tasmanian Tiger is an animal that's now extinct. Before it went extinct, of course, there were only a few left on the planet. It's native to Australia, or it was native to Australia. And uh, it, was, it was highly sought after by hunters and scientists. And people wanted to find the last Tasmanian tiger alive. There's actually a fictional movie about a guy who goes looking for the last Tasmanian tiger that's still out there with Willem Dafoe. It's called The Hunter. But anyway, it's called the Tasmanian Tiger Fund or Tasmanian Tiger Capital because I'm searching something that's elusive. Um, and I want, I want that, I want the title of my fund to, to remind me of that. So I'm, what I'm doing here is my strategy is to bridge the gap between the mom and pop investor who dump all of their money in that sure as, sure as, uh, sure as the morning sun index fund that gives them six to 8% returns average year in, year out until they retire. I want to bridge the gap between that and, uh, the strategies that very conservative fund managers use in terms of their diversification, how much money can, you know, they create rules, like how much money can be allocated to one, to one company, things like that. I want to bridge the gap between those kinds, those kinds of funds and the wild speculator who is searching for the biggest returns possible, which is an area which more or less doesn't have rules. I want to bridge that gap because I want to get outsized returns and I want to set my portfolio up in a way that will, you know, um, and not just out of sheer luck, but but with you know mathematics and the laws of mathematics and probability theory in mind will give me returns that not just beat the S&P, but absolutely crush the S&P 500 consistently over time. So I'm just going to get into it. I've been thinking a lot the past week about the rules and the strategy of this portfolio. And after a lot of crumpled papers, uh, I think I've come up with one. And I'm just going to get right into the guidelines, Tasmanian Tiger Capital. So minimum number of companies that I could be invested in is one company. 
the maximum that I would ever be invested in is 10, and I'll get into that in a little bit. The kind of positions that are allowed in this fund are both long and short positions, um, but uh, the vast majority of these positions being long positions. So the idea of this fund is to find unique opportunities, and I'm not just talking about, oh, good opportunities, but the upside is greater than the downside. I'm talking about those opportunities that someone who has a good eye for the market and a good eye for not only how companies work, but how stock prices move. Someone who has a good eye for that. How you can find not just good opportunities, but crazy, unique opportunities that really only happen once a month to once every two months, or possibly only a handful of times a year. Times when there is vast upside risk to virtually no or extremely limited downside risk. I don't have any at the moment, but you get the idea and I can get into you know what I define as a truly unique opportunity uh, later. But um, the idea is to have a portfolio that is companies from one to 10 companies at a time. So my rule is that at no point would any one company exceed 20% of my whole portfolio. That's one of my rules. But companies can be anywhere from 0% to 20% of my portfolio. Um, ideally somewhere between 10% and 20%. And any money that isn't invested in a unique opportunity will be split between cash and, uh, and BND, the Vanguard Broad Bond Fund, which uh, pays pretty much a 3% dividend, you know, effectively pays a 3% dividend yield. And the stock price, I believe it's stayed between $80 and $81, you know, since the since its inception, you know, it's the bond it's a bond ETF with a zero, I mean a 0 0.05 expense ratio. That is pretty much just a safe haven for money but still beats inflation. Um and I'd split uh my unused what I'll call my unused capital between that bond fund and cash because I need to have enough cash to take advantage of opportunities when they arise. And I can't uh you know, obviously can't have all my cash in a bond fund when I'm looking for unique opportunities because if one were to arise in a moment's notice, I wouldn't have the time to sell out of that bond fund and then wait the two to three business days because the opportunity could have passed by then and probably would have passed by then. Um, so that's my plan to, to most efficiently use cash to beat inflation, actually to get positive returns over time. So, so um the amount of companies that this portfolio would be invested in at any given time is completely dependent on how many unique opportunities there are. There could be one unique opportunity with incredible, incredibly attractive asymmetric risk. And I could put anywhere from 10, you know, around 10%, but no more than 20% of my money in it. And then have the remaining 80% of the entire value of my fund be, you know, again, split between that bond fund and uh, cash. And just to get into specifics, I would set it up so that I would have a 20% cash position at all times. Um, that way I could jump into one or two, one to two very good opportunities should they arise. Um, and the rest would be in the bond fund because I don't see, it would be very unlikely that more than one, and I'm just two to be safe, unique opportunities would arise in a single day. If they were, then I would use that 20% cash position to, to take advantage of them. And then I would just sell some of my BND to reestablish a 20% cash position. 
So whatever isn't invested in companies will be split in cash between, you know, cash and BND so that 20% of my portfolio is in cash. Um, so that's, that's, that's my rule. That's my thinking there. So I think that this is the best idea for a portfolio strategy because you set rules so that you don't go all in to one company. You don't have 40% of your portfolio, 50%, 30, even 30% of your portfolio in one company because, you know, Murphy's Law. I mean, imagine the guy who had been invested, who or who decided, and, th- and this is a thing that happened, decided to not, you know, irrationally decided to invest in Chipotle one week before uh, their E. coli outbreak. He, you know, and I'm sure thousands of retail investors um, invested millions of their millions of their hard-earned money into Chipotle, and now they lost half their money in a month's notice. A completely, a completely unforeseeable event because of a completely unforeseeable event. So obviously you never want to be too much in one company just you know because of Murphy's Law. No matter how attractive the opportunity, you don't want to lose everything. But um, the idea is to be in one to two to maybe even three or four depending on, you know, if the when if and when these opportunities arise, to be in these opportunities so that you can still remain for the most part in cash. And not just in cash, but in that bond fund that's, you know, beating inflation. And still, just by taking advantage of these unique opportunities that happen a few times a year and cashing them out and returning your fund back to cash and in the bond fund, absolutely destroy the destroy the S P five hundred and and to beat most fun, most fund managers, I mean, it sounds naive and maybe even vain to to shoot for the to shoot for those uh, percentages in that return. But again, I, I don't see any reason in, in in aiming for anything less. Why not? If I if I think I can develop a strategy to have the best returns possible, um, there's there's a lot of people will criticize this as you know being you know overweighted in too few companies. Well, there's two huge pros that I've more or less already hinted at. One of the pros is when you're overweighted in a few companies, at the very least, it's preferable to being, you know, at least as an individual investor or even with a partner. It's much better to be in fewer companies simply because, the, you know, the fewer companies you, you, you have and you are invested in, the easier it is to track. If you're invested in anywhere from 20 to 40 to maybe even, you know, 60 companies, it's nearly impossible for one person, in my view, to adequately keep tabs on those companies. Um, to the point where you could, you know, meaningfully decide, for example, how to allocate your money to them, when to buy, when to sell, and to keep track of all their earnings reports, how they're doing, and even just keeping track of the big picture. The big picture for that many companies, I think, would be pretty much impossible. I mean, it's possible, but uh, not. It would. It would. It would require so much time and so much energy, and that uh, compared to you know the returns you would make, which I would you know argue would really not differ from the re- returns of the S&P 500. It would not differ from those basic minimal returns to, to the point where it would be worth doing that. I think if you're going to invest and you're going to try to beat the market and you're going to try to be the best the best fund manager of all time, uh, you have to come up with a strategy that takes advantage of great opportunities and, and, and sort of you know puts your money down, but in a way that minimizes risk. And I think that this does minimize risk, minimize risk because... Even if one of my, let's just say, for example, that at one point I find two incredibly attractive opportunities, and you know I'm 15% in one and 15% in the other, 
when the kind of opportunities I'm looking for are opportunities where even if the overall market were to crash or have a significant correction, they would not, because they had already been to such a low and because their upside is so vast, they would remain very strong in the face of a market, an overall market that was crashing. So these these are these are opportunities that are actually would hold up just as strong as any you know dividend aristocrat. And uh, another good thing is, let's say you're invested in two opportunities with taking on some risk, but again with great upside opportunities. And I just have to keep I just have to keep clarifying this. If not for you, then for me, that these are opportunities that really only come up anywhere from five times a year to you know fifteen times a year. I'd say. If you're invested in a few of these opportunities at once and the overall market crashes, you will look like an absolute genius as the average fund in the S&P loses anywhere from 15%. So even, you know, going back to the, you know, great recession 2007-2008 from 20% to, you know, 40% of your portfolio in a single day or a single week or a single month, you will look like an investing god simply for having 60 to 70% of your money in a bond fund to the point where if in the event of an overall stock market crash you would actually still have not only you'd be obviously beating the S&P but you would actually be profitable as your uh, bond fund returns that 3% and uh, that by the way that's 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 paid out the BND fund pays out its dividends monthly which is very convenient for obvious reasons. So the idea is we would also maintain a watch list of many companies that are sort of approaching a, a price or valuation that gets you know gets into wow there is no downside here in such great upside territory. And uh, the idea is not just to plop twenty percent down the moment you see a great opportunity, but to to place five percent of your portfolio in this great opportunity. And if it stays there or begins to go even a little bit lower, the stock price goes even lower. Start uh, adding a little bit more, and you you add up, and you 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 reach that first, you reach that first milestone. You reach, you know, ten percent of your portfolio is now this company. And if you really think, after really strongly reviewing the prospects, doing crunching the numbers, and also not that, but understanding sort of the psychology of the market and. And people might criticize me for even bringing that up, but the reality is um, the market actually has more to do with uh, psychology and how people react to news and price movements and events than it actually has to do with fair valuation of companies historically. And if you if you were to argue the opposite is true, then you're out of your mind. Um, just just look at look at you know look at the uh, look at look at how stocks are trading right now. They're way above. Um, their earnings and um, look at how stocks traded in the late 90s with the tech bubble just completely just irrational trading and eventually the market corrected itself but I mean I, I'm, I'm going a little off, off track here but the point is you need to understand not just the companies but just how prices move and how they tend to move and why and I think I've had enough experience sort of watching uh, for better or worse watching stocks go up and down throughout the day to really understand not just the companies themselves and to, you know, read the balance sheet and, and the press releases, but also to understand how prices, the prices move up and down intraday. And obviously once you make, once you establish your favorable uh, favorable position, that's no 
no greater than 20% of your, your funds once that opportunity begins to pay off. And, you know, it really, it should be, it almost always should, given that it's a very high probability. The, the opportunities I'm describing here, and I'll, I'll get into a specific example in a moment, but the opportunities I'm describing here will almost always pay off to some extent. The strategy is not just to wait and be greedy and wait for it to go to the highest possible point and sell it all, but just as you begin to profit from your position, to sell gradually on the way up so that you still profit if it comes back down. But uh, if it goes way, way up, um, astronomically, much more than you could have anticipated, you're not kicking yourself as you would have sold gradually and you would have taken advantage of profiting at, at different higher amounts uh, throughout uh, you know, your selling period, however long that period. It could be a day, a week, a month, a couple months. But you get the idea. So here I'm going to get into a specific example of what I think is a unique opportunity. So take the company Sun Edison. They're a global utility solar company. They have a great reputation. Uh, a couple years ago, actually, just as sort of a, a fun fact, an island in Hudson Bay that was a dump and an actual it was a it was a dump a trash dump was converted from a, a landfill to a solar farm that now powers a very significant part of the borough of, of New York City. And when that happened, there were all sorts of press releases. Mayor Bloomberg gave a speech at the island. Um, I mean, and this is a company that not only has a great reputation in the United States, but they're uh, making global investments. They're expanding into South America, Brazil, India. Uh, they're huge. Uh, they have, uh, they're sort of like the Amazon of solar. They're just absolutely after global growth. And given given how how much press climate change is getting and given how catastrophic climate change really is. This whole sector, solar, I mean, you have to pick and choose which companies you want to be in because not all companies are going to succeed. But solar in general has everything going for it. In terms of its future, it's every single government is now propping up their solar industries and really pushing for renewable energy and in 10 to 20 years, there's no reason why solar energy won't begin its path to slowly overtake oil completely. And it's a very long-term long picture, obviously, but you get the point. Don Edison was at $30 a share. The market was valuing it at around $20 billion. In a, in a, in a, in a month, it crashed all the way down from 30 to around $7 a share. And then uh, crashed all the way down to $2 because... Um, uh, the media was exaggerating its debt-written balance sheet. People on MSNBC TV were trashing them. And there was just this really exaggerated fear and emotional panic selling that was going on that drove this stock from 30 to 7, but then in a single afternoon, drove it all the way down from 7 to 2. $2 a share, valuing a company that was once valued at $20 billion at $1 billion. A company that has tons of debt, but uh, most of that debt is project debt, not real corporate debt, and is easily overturned. And a company that, once they get rid of their debt, could be worth, I mean, they could be worth $100 billion given where solar is going, and given how they've actually become economically profitable, though, you know, gap earnings um, doesn't allow for them to report earnings. They are, they are, I mean, given 
given the economics of solar, they are now a profitable business in terms of buying and selling, I mean, you know, creating and selling their projects. They are a profitable business. They just build up so much that over time. Um, they crashed all the way down to $2. And just and you just know that at, at that price, that the downside, once that happened, if you were watching watching the, the stock move that day, you just know that from from that point, the upside in this great company with a great future ahead, but once they get past a few bumps, have so much potential that the downside from $2 is so small and the upside so vast that you would have to be crazy not to, at the very least, be tempted to put a significant portion of your portfolio in it. And, that, and this is my example of a unique opportunity um, where downside is so low and upside is so great that you can be comfortable putting 10 to 20% of your portfolio in it. And then, I mean, what, what did happen, and I, and I personally didn't buy, I, I sh- should have, I'm, I'm a moron for not doing it. I don't know why I didn't. I, I already had some money in it and it kept going down. I, and I just, for some reason, I just stubbornly, you know, sort of pass it off. As, as, but I mean, but in the moment, even I could still see how great of an opportunity it was, and yet I didn't take advantage of it because it was against my sort of principles as a big diversified portfolio. You know, what they know what I was trying to mock at least the dividend paying, reasonable growth S and P five hundred styled portfolio. I didn't take advantage of it, and uh, it would go from two dollars and forty five cents to above $6 in a matter of weeks after that. Tripled. I think it actually more than tripled. Now, if you had just been 20, you know, not even 20, but if you had been 10% in that company and the rest in cash, 90% in cash, and you'd just invested 10% and at a moment where the downside was just so ridiculously low and the upside so vast, if you had done that and you had tripled your money and sold and taken that profit, if 10% of your portfolio triples, so just, just to sort of paint a picture here, which just use a nice round number. If you have ten, if you have a $10,000 portfolio, and that's how you start out, and you invest $1,000, 10%, in a company that triples, that $1,000 goes to $3,000. So now your overall fund is worth $13,000. That's a 30% gain, and you didn't expose 90% of your fund to anything but cash. Um, and actually, if you were smart, you would have um, done what I plan to do and put uh, 60% or 70% in a bond portfolio to the point where you would actually, even if you had not invested and you would still be up. Um, you still would have made money. So you've made money from not only the bond fund and the yield from the bond fund, but you made 30% in one month and you, all you exposed was 10% of your money to an incredibly attractive opportunity. If you did that three times a year, twice a year, you would be, you would be the greatest fund manager of all time. So why don't more people do this? Well, it's, it's obviously a lot easier said than done. Um, most people, if they you know put 10% of their money in, in one of these opportunities and uh, it goes up, they're tempted to the next time they see an opportunity that really, if you really are honest with yourself, the next time they see an opportunity that has upside, but also great downside, 
they'll dump 20% in and they'll just get so addicted to the point where they are literally not an investor. And I wouldn't even call them a speculator. Uh, they're at the point where they're gambling and that that's when it obviously gets dangerous and most people in that, in that situation lose everything. But if you set rules like I plan to do here and you really set a strict criteria for what you see as unique opportunity and uh, you, know, you set limits on percentages, you set guidelines for, how, for the manner in which you sell and mo probably most importantly the manner in which you in w the manner in which you buy there's no reason why if you're prudent if you understand the market if you understand companies which I think I do I'm definitely not a master and I definitely have a lot to learn but I've been following the market very closely and not just again I've said this a million times I'm beating a dead horse but not just the companies themselves and the numbers within the companies and press releases and balance sheets and keeping track of you know potential future future growth and you know doing discounted cash flow analysis and things like that if you not only understand how to do that but you also understand how price moves because at the end of the day that's how you make money when the when the stock goes from down to up or up to down if you're short in the position if you understand that and you follow strict rules there's absolutely no reason why you can't at the very least return 10% a year once all is said and done and the dust settles, which, by the way, 10% would, I mean, the S&P 500, Jack Bogle, for example, founder of Vanguard, believes that, and I, and I agree with him, that the S&P 500 is, uh, it historically has returned 8 to 11%, but going into the future, it's going to return less than that. The, the rate of, of, of corporate earnings growth is going to slow down in the next 50 years, and uh, I, think that's, I think that's right, and uh, I'm not going to get into the details, but Given that, given that my strategy, if implemented in the very strict, perfect way that I want to do it, can return some anywhere from 10 to even 50% returns. Again, once the dust settles and once you've sort of been, once you've taken advantage of several unique opportunities, some of which, you know, of course, I mean, I'm not crazy as to assume that some of my opportunities won't, you know, the small percentage chance that they, you know, the small percentage chance that they fail will happen you know, will completely go bust. But even that, the other opportunities that I take advantage of and the percentages I, I assign to each company that I'm invested in, uh, once all is said and done at the end of it, at the end of a fiscal year, just be up by ridiculous amounts that most people this just wouldn't be possible for most people, mainly because of mainly because of, you know, a high barrier to entry in terms of knowledge. Most people don't know anything about the stock market or about how companies truly work. Um, so they just, they don't really have a choice but to make their monthly contributions to their to their mutual funds and their Roth IRAs, which is, you know, very fair and fine. And it's, honestly, most people don't even do that for some reason. That's the main reason why um, there's a high barrier entry because, you know, there's a certain amount of knowledge you need to do this. Uh, and also because most people, the second reason almost is almost as uh, salient as the first, or uh, you know, meaningful as the first reason, uh, is emotions. Uh, most people don't have just even when they set rules, they just don't have the emotional uh, wherewithal to to actually implement the rules that they plan for themselves and to not be tempted into just complete gambling, which just leads to just I mean. And in almost in a ninety nine percent of cases will lead to just complete destruction. So that's the plan for this portfolio. I'm calling it Tasmanian Tiger Capital. Stick with me. I'll be 
giving weekly updates on on how I do. You can cheer me on if I'm if I'm successful and laugh in my face if I fail miserably. But that's the goal, and those are the loose guidelines. Um, if I change, for you know, not change, but if I tweak any of the any of the guidelines for this you know aggressive fund, I'll update you on those. But good luck, good luck to you, and I'll be I'll be in touch. Mm-hmm.